All right, let me pray us in and then we'll begin. It's wonderful to see you all, though the light out there is still incredibly bright. So let's pray. Gracious and holy God, thank you for this day. Lord, I was reminded the other night when someone prayed for our church and mentioned all those who are on the prayer chain, all those who need, um, who are listed in the abundant living, all those who need our prayers, Lord, and we lift them up to you this morning. Pray your healing hand upon them as we look at the scripture today. Um, healing in all kinds of way are what people need, but especially those we think of, Lord, who are physically ill right now or trying to recover, and we pray that you would be with them. I do lift up uh, Marty Summercamp, who's having surgery this morning, Lord, uh, just be with her. I lift up my mother-in-law, who at 100 is having her pacemaker battery changed this morning. Pray that that goes well, and thank you for all the years that you've given to her. May you continue to lengthen her days. Lord, we pray for Phyllis uh, Clavel as she recovers from surgery she had yesterday, doing well. Be with Bill as he ministers to her. And Lord, we thank you for this church, for the way in which we can reach out and care for others. Now, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning as we look at Jesus the Messiah. We ask this in his name. Amen. Okay, so what is a Messiah? What is a Messiah? What does Messiah mean? The anointed one. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lloyd Smith. <laughs> it means the anointed one. So um, what is a Messiah complex? Okay, so would it be safe to say that a Messiah complex might be that they think they are all powerful, that they have the authority, and they could, they could take care of what needs to be taken care of? Does that sound fair? The complex is actually believing that and operating <laughs> in that way. And we have, you know, a lot of... The, what's another kind of messiah complex that is almost the opposite of that? What happens to the messiah? What is the ultimate goal of the messiah that is so different from what we anticipate? Pardon? He dies for us, right. So another messiah complex is someone who feels almost like a martyr, right? The martyr complex is what we have. Neither of those have anything to do with scripture, but, I, but oftentimes it's not scripture, but our world that um, defines words and who people are and what they do. So now let's just turn and uh, we're going to begin with the text in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the number one key part that we want to think about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So if you were to take your little pencil or pen with your Bible and mark through the active words of what um, God is going to do. Keep those in mind as we go through this. Um, so as your notes tell you, the Messiah means anointed one. It's key to the passage and the foundation for what the servant will be able to accomplish. Now this is a servant Messiah text. The one in Luke doesn't use a kind of servant Messiah, but you see that going on. So this 
text is known as the servant Messiah, what, um, what is anointed by uh, God, called by God um, to do the work. And um, a little bit later we go to Luke. The first part of Luke, we're not studying that today, but Jesus uses this exact text. Remember, he goes into the synagogue, he's in Nazareth, um, excuse me, Capernaum at that point, and he opens the text and he reads that text to them. And um, so the, it's the exact same text that he's just pulling it out of um, Isaiah when he reads this. And um, chapter 11, if you go back in Isaiah, it's very explicit. And, and as are the um, chapters 55 through 66. We kind of talked about this last year. I know you guys remember that. I know you remember everything that we teach you. So, but just in case that you're like me and things leak out of your brain. Um, the word sent is secondary to the announcement of being the anointed one, okay? Oftentimes, I think we head out to do something, like um, we're, we're going to fix something or we have a plan or something, you know, we're, we feel sent to do that. Well, the first thing is that are you called to do that? Is that something that you're called to do? We, sometimes we love to give wonderful advice, not necessarily a calling, anointing, but we feel sent to do that. I'm, I'm guilty of that. Corinna, let me really tell you, this is my daughter, what I, there are two things I really want to tell you about what I think you need to know. And I'm like, she hasn't even asked for this information. And so if I'm smart, I'll stop talking then. But all right. Um, why is a servant or why is a Messiah brought? So let's look at some of these things. Number one, the servant is anointed, empowered to bring justice and righteousness on earth. It, other texts that talk about that. And it's often through the spoken word. Now, you're going to see in the next text that we look at, mostly action items that Jesus is doing, but it starts earlier with Jesus teaching, action words. He's also going to speak and make healing happen with Simon's mother-in-law. But um, the word given, the word spoken, the word lived out is really, really important. Jesus did a heck of a lot of preaching, guys. So when you go, why are we preaching? Why aren't we just doing this stuff? Well, doggone it. He did preaching too. He did speak. He did um, bring that good news in word as well as in action. So we see this in here. Um, and um, we look at the spoken word. By the way, the percentage of people who were educated at that time is minuscule, very, very tiny, tiny percent of people who could read or write. And so Jesus, even though um, he was a carpenter's son and raised up, it was obvious that he went to schooling and learned. And they probably figured out he was a very clever young man, and that's what you would do. Um, you would always have your father's job or whatever, but you would also, um, if you were a clever boy, you would get schooling. And so when Jesus, when we see that he's learned um, and knows the stuff, that's kind of important to know. Otherwise, you would memorize, memorize, memorize. That's a lost art, something that we should probably gain back. Um, but it was a, a lot of what they did. The Apostles' Creed, I've told you before, they knew they could memorize that and make a statement about their faith and not worry about it because nobody was educated. And they, there's no way that they could learn and read and do that, so that it was wrote to memory. Um, also, the telling of the stories and the testaments that were eventually written down, you had to memorize them and you had to get them right. And you couldn't have, 
you had a little poetic license that you see that in the gospel, not a whole lot. So spoken word is a very, very um, important and justice and righteousness is often brought in the spoken word. Okay, the spirit of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is associated with someone um, who has been given supernatural wisdom and abilities. In Isaiah, the power of, to bring justice and righteousness on earth through the spoken word is associated with the spirit. So remember David said, Lord, don't let your spirit come from me. God would anoint people for a time or a season. So there is something greater than just good leadership skills, you know, that's just really, really great. If you haven't signed up and you want to go, um, Holly's not here to stop me, please come Saturday to the seminar. I mean, honestly, it's about leadership. You all lead in some ways, if you've read kids or you're in a group or do something else, but you might also help you to see what leaders should look like. And there's a huge spiritual part of that um, that we adhere to as believers and making sure that we things that we do are um, called by God to do it and spirit infused to do that. And so you see that a lot in the Old Testament um, where there are people who, that are called and given power and wisdom to do justly, to bring righteousness. It's not just a great idea. So I was reading um, in McGovern, it was McGovern that went against um, Nixon a thousand years ago. Right, I guess he was in a church, and um, he had all his folks there rallying around him, and he took this text, and he read these first few verses, and he said, you know, this is what I'm, I'm going to do, and I, I, and I wasn't around to notice this, but um, it's interesting how sometimes we pull things or we get things and think, oh, I am this person at this time. Well, that's kind of a, I don't know, I don't know that's a lot, McGuire. That's a lot for any politician. And thanks be to God, the elections are over for now. Whew, thank you, Jesus. Okay. Everyone's saying at least we won't have to look at all the posts for a while. And, um, but anyway, uh, seeing that that's a God thing, go back. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So you associate that with those who are called um, to bring justice and to bring righteousness. And, um, and that's both a a calling and a comfort that um, we don't do anything that we do when we're called of God um, without the promise of the Spirit being with us. In the Old Testament, Spirit came and left. New Testament, Spirit indwells every believer. And so we have that. Um, okay, the work of the Spirit is to bring good news of God's triumph. He declares good news to the poor. So let's go back into history right now before I go through all of these. Um, uh, all these conditions may have to do with, with what we think of as poor. It probably has a heck of a lot more to do with the emotional, the, the, the poor of spirit, the poor of heart, uh, the poor of um, hope. And my little hope ring on with all my 18,000 other pieces of jewelry today because I always have hope. Um, but the poor in spirit had a lot to do with everything that's going on for Israel at this time. They were incredibly disobedient. They also were incredibly shocked at the condition in which they found themselves. So these are people that are anxious. These are people that, are, that feel uh, downtrodden, that are grieving over their losses, that feel captive for a number of reasons. And, um, and they're all, so when you speak to that, have you ever had 
someone come up to you and they're having this like this great day and you know it's obvious you, you're you're downhearted and they're just telling you oh I just had the best time and we just did this and we just did this and you thought okay well I should I should I should be happy about this and they totally missed it this person this Messiah who's coming hasn't missed the heart of the people what a great ministry if God has given you a heart for people, a heart to look at them and say, hey, what's really going on? How do you feel? What can I do for you? How can I minister to you? So that's that kind of feeling. But it was obvious that Israel was in um, a, a lot of trouble, a lot of angst. A, a lot of the people of God felt isolated, abandoned, captive, downhearted. And here he's coming and he's speaking to exactly those things. Um, it's good news, and Jesus is good news. And the reason why is because um, it, he comes to us. Um, those who are broken in life, those who are suffering, though all those, Jesus comes as good news for them. That whatever is going on right now, it is not forever. And sometimes I think we get into situations where we feel like it's forever. And forever is, is not true of these things. And so there's this comfort that's coming in. He is sent, so it is God sent, talked about that before, to bind up the brokenhearted. And I love, you know, the illustrations here. Those who are poor, poor in spirit, those who um, are brokenhearted, um, I think I've shared with you before, and when I get really brave, I share it every once in a while, um, or I pray it's every once in a while. A friend of mine gets up and prays, Lord, break my heart um, for those who breaks your heart. Break my heart for those whose heart is broken and that you're aware of. Let, let me feel what you feel, Lord, for those who are brokenhearted. Break my heart for them. I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a huge prayer. That's a huge, and it's so sincere. And so it's like every day, Lord, break my heart for those who are brokenhearted, that I might have that compassion for them. And when we have that compassion, it's like, okay, well, I have that burden. It's that desire by the Spirit to do something, to be sent to do something. So binding up that brokenhearted and just the analogy there, it's like kind of putting, putting that back together, binding it up, um, having it. Um, his word is like that of a king. So in the time, and by the way, oftentimes you would call kings or prophets or rulers for a season, they would be called the anointed one. So the capital M, Messiah, we think of Jesus, the one savior that was promised and coming. Um, and um, but the, the Messiah, the word, the anointed one would be given to kings, you know, like David was an, um, anointed normally. And we get this in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the only time you did anointing was um, when you're anointing a king or when you're anointing someone to rule or, or to be set apart for a, a purpose. And so oftentimes they would be the ones who are doing that. But if a king said, let it be so, it would be so. And so you get this kind of language that it's, um, uh, that when you make that pronouncement, it happens. It's a language that's kind of, it's, it's happening. You're going to bind this you're going, I'm going to bind up your heart, so take care. Um, and just a word, he's, uh, the Messiah is 
not just the messenger of the good news, the Messiah is the good news, because it's the Messiah that can do this for the people of God. You with me so far? Make sense? Any questions so far? Okay. So far, so good then. Okay. Let's look at number four. The servant is sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a period of time. It's like um, you can expect this, this is coming. It's not just this general great by and by. It's a, it's a period of time sent. It's sent by the Lord. And the vengeance and favor are the result of the grace and justice of God. So vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So don't waste your time there. Let God do that. Um, we should remember that with the election year. This might be a really good thing to do. Okay, so um, it is uh, the year of the Lord's favor that God is in the plan of this. This is what's happening. Again, when Jesus says this, when he breaks in and quotes this scripture, he is saying that time of the Messiah, the Messiah, is now. I've broken in. This is the time. This is the season. Present not yet complete. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't died. He has not resurrected, and he's not come back. So, but it's the beginning of that. So here is this time, and um, and then um, the last part of this, and the day of vengeance of our God. Um, it's the Lord's favor to comfort all who mourn. He will comfort all who mourn, and the mourning implies the loss of their position, that's Israel's position at Zion, that's gone, as well as the reality of knowing the sin in their lives, okay? Jesus came not to establish a new Zion or to bring Israel back um, into power. Jesus came to forgive sins. And if we lose sight of that, we'll lose sight of what it means to be the anointed one. That's part of the issue that happens in the Old Testament because, again, it's so often used as that of an anointing of a leader, of a king, of somebody who's going to bring the people out of the oppression of the other group and establish their power. Again, Jesus comes first and foremost to save us from our sins. The sin in the world causes the broken heart. The sin in the world makes us poor in spirit. The sin in the world makes us mourn. It just kind of, because it's a broken world. And it doesn't have to be our particular sin. Though more times than not, um, oh yeah, that, that was me on that one. That was, you know, kind of the situation where we think, oh, no, that wasn't me, that was them. But, but the sin of the world, we're captive to that. We know that because everyone dies. Um, and the biggest fear, generally, of people is death. Now, many of us will go, I, you know, once I'm gone, I'm good. <laughs> but it's the getting there that makes me fearful. It's the death itself. But for some people, it's the death and not knowing. Um, and that's where we have a great opportunity to uh, come and share. Oh, I have great hope. I'd love to share that with you. But we, you know, most of us fear death. And death is not part of creation. It's part of the fall. It was not intended. It's part of the fall. So there's, there's that issue that we live with in everything. 
Everything is affected by that. So Jesus comes, that's the good news. He is the good news. And the Messiah who's coming in the Old Testament that's talked about in Isaiah is coming to take care of all those things that have kept us separate um, and, and hurt and disappointed. And for Israel collectively in talking about this, it's like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to heal all those things in you that are broken and that are not working and that have left you downtrodden and have put you into mourning. Now, um, just a couple of things aside. Uh, Sierra, who is in our front office, a phenomenally capable young woman who uh, married a uh, man from Oaxaca, Mexico, so we have a great affinity. She helps with our deacons. She's a receptionist. She's just phenomenal, and she's leaving us <laughs> like because she's going to go work full-time for obviously a better paid job with opportunity to advance. Go figure. <laughs> like, come to our church. You'll be underpaid. You'll not get any kind of, um, a, you know, in, if you're part-time, you don't get any other stuff to go with that. And, um, and there's no promotion. But other than that, we're really this great group. Come with us. But she's wonderful. And so she went in, and it was, I found out Thursday after Ash Wednesday. And so I went in and looked at her, and I said, were there any ashes left over from last night? And she said, no, I think, you know, Gustavo cleaned them all up and put them away. And I went, oh, that's too bad because I needed some for my sackcloth. So the saying in, in Old Testament is that you would put on sackcloth, ashes on your head, and mourn. Mourn the loss. Um, isn't that cute? Yeah. Mourning is normally, yeah. I thought, I thought it was clever. <laughs> Thank you. Um, mourning is normally for a season. Um, I consider myself a minister in mourning. It's just kind of who I am, and um, didn't never planned on that. Thank you very much, but it's kind of who I am, and um, so I I traverse life through that, and um, and yet I've never lost, and you'll see this in your little exercise for your questions. I've never lost hope, and I never will, even as I move through that. That's what this passage is saying. Time is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus ushers that in to take care of these things that really keep us from trusting God because we're consumed. We're preoccupied oftentimes by those things that do that. So um, last part, the Messiah announces that he is here to heal the damage that a broken world, disobedience, and sin brings. Um, here's the deal, guys. We can either embrace or we can resist sin, but only the Messiah can take the sin away, okay? So we can embrace it, we can resist it. There is sin in the world, but Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world. That's what the role of the Messiah is, all right? Let's turn to Luke, if you have questions on Isaiah, I'm very happy that I've been able to say it very American today by saying Isaiah, not Isaiah, which I tend to do and like to do, actually. It makes me think of my good friends on the, across the pond. Okay, let me just do a few things. This is the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Um, looking briefly at the chapter before, we get to the 38 through verse 41. Uh, the purpose of the ministry of Capernaum. 
Jesus has been in his hometown, and Luke and Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1, very, very closely tie with this. Matthew has some later um, in verses 9, in chapters 9 and, and stuff. But Luke starts, you know, with the baby Jesus, gets him through all the, the very, very early things. And again, Luke is a physician. That will help us when we look at this. He's a Gentile, and he was not a disciple. Other than that, he's great. <laughs> he just says, but he really wants people to know. So he has a worldview when he presents us. Matthew's very, um, very much the Hebrew. Mark is in a hurry. Luke is kind of in a hurry. There's an urgency to this text, just so you know that. Jesus has gone to Nazareth, and they've kind of rejected him. And he's gone there preaching and teaching, and they're like, oh, really? Naz, you know, didn't you grow up? Aren't you, you know, so he leaves there because they're about to throw him off a cliff because he kind of got um, in a little conversation with the Sadducees and Pharisees, and they're ready to get rid of him. So mostly Pharisees and leaders. And so he slips through, the last part of chapter three is he slips through the crowd and escapes, kind of this cool thing. And then he goes to Capernaum, which is, um, uh, it says he goes down, but actually elevation-wise, definitely going down. You go down to about 700 feet below sea level when you go to Capernaum, but it's north of Nazareth. It's on the Sea of Galilee. So it kind of reminded me of Incline Village. <laughs> like you have to go, you're going out of California, folks, you're going to Incline Village. You know? So he went out of his, his, he went to the outside in a real sense. A lot of Jews were in uh, Capernaum, but a lot of Greeks and Romans. So he leaves the inside group, and Jesus goes to the outside group. And um, he's been rejected there, so he goes there um, to preach. Um, this happened a lot with Jesus. The insiders, those who were of the people of faith, rejected him, and he continued to go to the outside, to those um, who often would hear. And for him, that those were the folks who were poor in spirit, brokenhearted, mourn, and even, and even to Samaritans. And that's who Jesus went to when the leaders and those in control and those who knew the religion and those who followed it specifically said no, no, no. Okay? So um, the 700 feet below a couple things happen. It's surrounded by water, and it gets very, very damp. So it is a breeding ground for diseases. You get too much moisture, it's a breeding ground, especially malaria. So that's just something to know going into this. And um, again, Luke, the physician, kind of, um, when he talks about um, what's happening, he'll be a little bit more specific medically. And I, you know, this kind of an, an interesting um, perspective, getting that from him. But um, when we go to Africa, we don't have to do it for Brazil, but when we go to Africa, we always get um, pills to take for malaria, and you take them before you go, and then you take them for a week afterwards. There are a couple of different types. One will make you hallucinate. One is just, so I'm always going, please, I'm sure it's effective, and you only need to, like, take it once a week, but leave that one at home and take the other one, because I, I don't want any psychosis on this trip if I can help it, you know. But you have to take this medicine or you will have a lifelong illness. And that's the part with malaria. It comes and goes. It's very, very hard to get rid of. And, um, and it all is centered around water. 
in the carrying of disease there. So just when you just think about that, and you, you know, we hear about malaria today, that's very much a part of what was going on. Um, Luke again parallels uh, Mark's passage, and Jesus uh, teaches and is praised for his teaching. So I go back again. Jesus was a teacher, and he taught, and he also did many, many other things, and we're going to see the many other things that he did. But don't lose sight of that. That that's you know it's why we study together. It's why we come to hear the word. I've some people go, I'd love the hymns. I'd love communion. Do we have to have homily? Like yeah. Jesus proclaimed the word, that's kind of what we're called to do. Um, but again, if you look at Luke, he receives his authority from the Father at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descends. So Jesus, the anointed one, is coming to bring the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to care, you know, to comfort the poor, to um, give uh, comfort the those who mourn, uh, to give hope to those who are poor. So Jesus, following uh, in verse, in the verses we're looking at, right before that, um, he's been in the synagogue, and um, and his rejection. I'm sorry, was early in the chapter of four, and um, and he goes when he goes to Capernaum, he is preaching, um, and earlier on, he is also casting out demons and they are saying you are the son of god and he's silencing them we'll talk about that in a minute but um his ministry is very very holistic and we were okay with certain what i call um uh, spiritual gifts and, and somebody would say sensational gifts gifts that um have faith uh gifts of healing healings i should say uh, gifts of exorcism. I don't know too many people like that. We're all seeing this in here, and we're all seeing part of Jesus' ministry without fear, just kind of, here's a person of authority that knows their role, knows what they're called to do, and is confident that they are able to do because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring this good news. And this good news very, very much is holistic. Begins with the proclamation, okay, his teaching. Uh, let's look at these verses. There's just four, and I can do that. Okay, put on my glasses. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon is Peter, by the way. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. That's the, that's the Luke who's the physician, okay? And they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. Okay, that's 38 and 39. Let's just stop there. He goes to the home of Simon Peter. Now, here's a really cool thing. The home of Peter was part of an insula. It's a block of Roman buildings. And so what you would do is you would have like this courtyard kind of in the middle, but with this big entrance, everybody could see it. And there are all these dwelling places around it. Community, it's not like the community today of gated communities or gated across your front of your yard or Fences, you know, neighbors, high fences make good neighbors. Isn't that what we say? <laughs> it's like, nah, nah, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's like this big, it's these huge brick. Normally, um, they were black brick. And in the commentary by uh, Jim Edwards, he was saying that this was kind of stuccoed over and had all kinds of little um, artwork and stuff on it. And if you go there, you could see part of this. But this is Simon Peter's, it, his house is in this place. And it's this big 
open insula, which is also a word used for the very inner cortex of your brain, which is all surrounded by a bunch of stuff. I thought that was interesting. But anyway, so this big place that they can go, and Jesus is going in there. Now what that does, and you'll see this later when Jesus tells parables, like the man who's knocking at, you know, for his neighbor to come and open it. Well, everybody in the neighborhood would know that because you all live close. You're all together, and, and you have open windows. And uh, your door may close, but your windows are kind of open. And, and so you cannot hide whatever's going on from your neighbors. Everybody knows everything. If everybody knew everything, I wonder how it would change. <laughs> just like, you know, I just wonder how that would be. Okay, just an aside there. All right. Um, so Jesus, uh, it's a gateway to many other doors. It's not a behind-closed-door moment, okay? And that's kind of important because that will affect everything else that goes on. Um, now, it is the Sabbath because we'll know in the next verses that it's before sunset. And what are you supposed to not do on the Sabbath? What can you not do? Work. Healing is considered work. But Jesus sees a need. It's not work, it's compassion. It's what he does. As I look at scripture, he seems to go out of his way at times to do things on the Sabbath because they've gotten confused with the purpose of the Sabbath. And so here's another example. He's taught in the, and they're amazed at his teaching. And then he goes with Simon to his home and there his Simon's mother-in-law has a high temperature. And again, families tended to extend. I think when we went to Egypt, I've shared with this before, the son marries, he just builds another level on top of a very unsturdy building. And they just keep going up. Families just stay together. It's what you do. Um, I wanted to do that with Corinna, and, and Rick said, no, she needs to grow up. She's gone with her new husband. <laughs> that was seven years ago. They've never come back. <laughs> it's my youngest. You're taking her from me anyway. Um, but there, this would not be unusual. Okay. Um, fevers in both the Old Testament and the New were associated with either demon possession or divine punishment. It's just the way it is. And, and it always worries me that people think, what have I done wrong? And obviously I'm sick because of this. That may be, you know, if you did something foolish um, and you may get sick, that's a, that's a logical or a natural, rather, consequence of your behavior. Um, my mother, when she was in second grade, only had one winter dress. You know, this is um, early on in the Depression. So she had one winter dress. She went to school every day in the same winter dress. She was so embarrassed. So she crept upstairs to the attic and got her little summer dress, made a very light cotton, wore it to school, and spent almost four months at home, pneumonia and sick. And um, so that would be a logical consequence of her being sick, not a divine punishment and not a demon possession, just an independent child. I would say that's probably was her biggest problem. By the way, in the time she spent at home, when she went back to school, she skipped a grade and a half and graduated at 16. So there you go. Making, making something beautiful out of ashes. So... Um, that's how it was understood. So as soon as you talk about this, that's where people's minds are probably going to go. What has caused this kind of thing? High fever, maybe she had malaria. Um, but um, he, he seems to, if you look at the back of the verse, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. 
and it left her. So it seems that he has an, an idea that maybe this is a demon possession or something else. Jesus, over her, rebukes the demon. Someone said, we don't have nearly as many healings. I was a couple weeks ago at um, Fuller. I, you know, I go every year. You'll normally see me after I've gone and had my study time, and we studied the Holy Spirit. And Mark Roberts, um, who's um, a, a good acquaintance of several of us, is a professor there. He does Life for Leaders. It's a you could, daily devotional. You could follow it. It's wonderful. He did a study on 1 Corinthians 12, and um, talked about um, healings that happen then and happen now. And we're all kind of trying to figure out why don't we see that many here? And we think about this phenomenal medical field in which we have and that God works together and everything. So I'm thinking, well, you know, we have cures for a lot of these things. Do we really need to lay hands on someone? When, you know, if you have a headache, try an aspirin. <laughs> it's, it's, it'll probably work for you. Um, I think... This, psychotic medicine does take care of a lot of mental illness. It never cures mental illness. There's a difference um, there. But they're coping skills, and they're good, and they should be taken, and they should be used. But here, you don't have any of those things. So the worry about this wonderful, terrible virus that's going around, um, wonderful, I said that, meant that sarcastically, is that in um, majority world countries, if it gets there, they're in terrible trouble because they don't have the resources. My brother was just going to go on a trip to Christmas Island to do some fishing and, and some uh, surfing and stuff like that, and they canceled the trip on him because they do not have the resources there if he gets sick, okay? So the one thing that you have is Jesus coming, he's coming, and he's doing what is not available anywhere else doesn't mean that it can't happen today because I've seen healings, I've experienced healings, I've seen God work. But here, Luke uses the language rebuke. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus lays his hands on Simon's mother. The point is not how it's done. The point is that Jesus has the authority. He is the anointed one. And immediately, she is healed. And... Um, and then he stood over, he said this, and immediately she got up and began to serve them. Now, most of us, when we start feeling better, um, and my husband has had this horrific cough, like forever, and it's finally gone away. And he got up yesterday and he said, you know, every day I get up and I feel like I'm about 60%. And then after a few hours, he goes and takes a nap with Hanneman, our dog. <laughs> And so uh, he got up yesterday and said, you know, today I feel like I'm just about like at 80 or 85%. The first time I felt this way in almost two months. And I thought, well, that's really great. So then you do feel more energized, right, when you're feeling well. But I would think, well, let this poor woman who's had this high fever. I mean, if a fever breaks, you're exhausted. You went to sleep. But she gets up and starts serving. And um, does it for probably a couple reasons. One, it's her job. That's what you do. It's Simon's house, but she's a mother-in-law, and this is what she does. Secondly, I think in gratitude, right? Uh, we do whatever we do, hopefully in gratitude to what God has done for us. Not out of obligation or because it's our job, though some days we would feel like that, but out of gratitude, and that's what she's doing. So she's, that's that first part. Okay. Um, okay, so then you look down, verse 40. As the sun was setting, that's how we know it's the end of the Sabbath, because at the end... He finishes the Sabbath services. He goes to Simon Peter. He heals uh, Simon's mother-in-law. 
And as the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Now, here's an interesting thing. One, again, they come after the Sabbath because now they can travel. Remember, you can't work. That means you can't travel. Okay, the sun is down. It's like they're on this race. So they, like, bring all the people who are sick, and they, like, bring them to Jesus because they know what he can do. And he begins, unlike with the mother who has a high fever, in this part, he's laying hands on them. And you know me, I'm always saying live dangerously. So it, this is not a good season for me because I like to hold hands when you pray. And I just told you that the best way to get sick is with, through hand touching. So I'm always thinking live dangerously. Here Jesus is all these sick people. He's fully human, guys. Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine. So there is a risk in that. He's laying hands on them. He's praying for them. But he's the anointed one. He's confident. So he's healing people. Um, again, you're in this community where um, diseases are um, prolific probably because of the wetness and the moisture. But he's there doing that. And they come. And then demons also came out of many shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now, a couple of things. Um, laying on of hands is emphasized in Luke to demonstrate the empathy of Jesus, and I think that's good. I think sometimes um, I hear this more of, of widows um, or widowers who have lost their wives, and they're just so lonely, so lonely for touch, so lonely for a hug, so, you know, just that, that's that empathy, just you know, give them a, a holy hug. It's my holy hug over here. But, you know, just the desire to do that. It was a man who had lost his wife, and he was in such grief. He's in a men's Bible study. And all the men just got up and just surrounded him and put their arms around him and, and just loved on him for a moment and meant the world to him. So there's that empathy that Jesus is willing to touch. Secondly, Old Testament, the laying on of hands was kind of like an anointing for a, a, a purpose, Laying on of hands, as I told you, like for David, anointed with oil. Laying on of hands for those who were going into leadership, not usually used in Old Testament practice for a blessing for people, but not necessarily for healing. It's unique. Um, only There's only one time in all the Old Testament, I have it written down here, in Genesis 20, when um, it's used to heal somebody. And... Um, that's the only time, but Jesus uses the laying on of hands to heal, and that's unique to Jesus. Again, um, the time is coming. The time is now here. There's a season, and this is what's going on in this season. And so um, the demons that proclaim you um, are Messiah are rebuked. If you, um, a, a couple things, uh, refer back to um, the very beginning in the Annunciation. Mary uses the word, the um, Son of God and Messiah, the anointed one, and so do the demons. It's just so interesting. You think, whoa, why would you have demons do this, and why would Jesus rebuke them if it's the truth? It is the truth, but a couple of things. If you look down there, he silenced the demons, both in verse 33, when he does a healing there, and then again in 41, because demons are hostile to God. They are not on our side. You know, they would uh, torment they would 
control, they would lead us away. The Messiah used in Old Testament referred mostly to political and military terms. So first, if you're not on God's side, don't tell me, don't make a proclamation about who I am in a way that would not be meant more accusatory than affirming. Does that make sense? You're the son of man. You're the Messiah. You know, that kind of a thing. And so that's one reason he doesn't want it. Secondly, Old Testament, they're thinking of a powerful leader. Remember, Israel wanted that power back. They wanted that establishment back. They wanted to be the country, um, the people that God had in control for them, that they were um, the in charge kind of people and does not want that title associated with himself because that's not the Messiah he came to be. He did not come to establish an earthly kind of kingdom. I didn't want them to um, think about him as being a Messiah for the reason uh, just gave. Um, and, um, and third, Jesus as a Messiah is the servant Messiah, and that's what we saw in 61. Um, it is essential to understand the divine sonship of Jesus. Since that role is not fulfilled until the cross of Golgotha, all utterances about Jesus' nature and mission are premature until then. Remember, it's like, it's not my time yet, don't tell. Even when someone would figure it out, it's not my time yet, don't tell. So you know what, demons who are hostile to you, you don't want, um, and I, there's a quote there about the demons, the re, um, and, and just to back up, it is about not a revelation to know who Jesus is, it's about a relationship. Remember when we say, oh, what religion are you? Well, we're not a religion. <laughs> we're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a relationship, and it's not just a revelation. Satan knew exactly who Jesus was, not a follower of him, but knew exactly. Um, so there would be that, and then I referred mostly to um, uh, politics, to the political realm, and um, military terms used for the Messiah, because normally they were anointed to go out and uh, be saviors for someone, you know, rescue them. Uh, get them to go to battle so that they could be free again. That's not the language that Jesus wanted used, and then it's not yet his time. Let me tell you just a little bit about um, uh, demons. I, I'm not well-versed in this, I have to be honest. Um, I do believe uh, in the Ephesian scripture that said against powers and principalities, there are far more things going on than that than we're not aware of. But Jesus conquers all. And my biggest fear with Christians who get a bee in their bonnet about um, demons or possessions or exorcism is that that becomes the trail that they go down rather than the one who comes to release people from whatever captures them, from whatever has not released them. So I myself have not um, been engaged in exorcism, and I pray I am never given that gift to do that. I have prayed for people for um, healing. Sometimes it has worked, sometimes it has not. I've told you before, our son Jordan was healed of a very, very rare blood disease, laying on of hands, and a lot of help with the doctors, but he was very unique for a child with Down syndrome to ever recover. He was the first um, to ever be able to do that. So I can't discount that, and if God tells me pray for people, I think we should pray for people. I think um, it's what Jesus did. It's the model, the model that we are given. 
but I think also <clears throat> we want to do it understanding it's our Savior who saves. And it's allowing God to do that, not us. Um, and uh, worked with, I don't know, Francis McNutt is a person who's no longer with us but was around forever, very gifted and praying for people and you would see healings and even he got exhausted at times and would have to go away and he would only, only pray as he felt the Holy Spirit leading him to pray uh, for people. But I think a uh, sad thing is hopefully when we're praying for people that we are praying both that the medical that's available to them would be a healing agent as well as the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, touching people and healing them. We're in a broken, broken world. Okay, questions? Timing-wise, this was really at the beginning then of Jesus? Yes, it is. Because this then one. at the end, then at, remember when, and I can't remember what this is, where, when was it when Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say I am? Because he's saying to the, you know, he doesn't want anybody to say he's the son of God at this juncture. But then yeah, later I think he, that's in the he gospel puts of John. the... Is it in the gospel? I, I would have to look up exactly where that is. It is when, before uh, he's started ministry, they've seen his work. Um, he's, not, he's headed to Jerusalem when he asks this question, they go up on the mountain. And, um, and his response to them is that you have not figured this out, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then um, it, Jesus is always wanting to wait because his main purpose is to, is to uh, bring us that uh, back into relationship with God. Okay, so, Matthew 16. There you go. It was one of the Gospels. I was close. Okay, so Matthew 16. So much further on. They don't necessarily follow the same chronological order. John is like on his own walk there, which is what made me think about that. It, it, but at some point, he, it is okay to acknowledge that he's the son of God for the disciples? N d with demons, never. With the right. disciples, he's just, it's a timing thing. With demons, because they should never give, you know, it, it would be kind of like, um, I have to be really careful here. Let's say that you're in the um, uh, leprechaun political party mm -hmm. and someone said, hi, would you please endorse the um, Viking party mm -hmm. candidate? Well, you would never want the leprechaun to endorse the Viking because they don't mm -hmm. like that person. So even if they knew who they were, what they were, it's kind of the same. That's a bad example. Well, I, I mean, I understand why he wouldn't want the demons to, but... but he's waiting. He's but waiting. he hadn't been crucified yet yeah. when he says the, to the disciples... I'll tell you, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the reason, the best, the best reason why is that they would then make him the King David of that time. That they would do the military, that they would do the political, that they would do... Here's come the Savior to establish Israel on earth again. And Jesus was far greater than that. Far, his plans were far bigger than that. So he's always trying to um, keep them focused on the real purpose. You know, it, that, it's so ridiculous. Here you're following, you know, a Messiah servant. His role is not to um, do what they think he's going to do, but to do far more. And yet it's highly costly, cost him his life. Okay? God bless you. And I... Um
I have hope for the day. Not only will I see Jesus, but I'll see our son. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day, ladies.